there are factors that are outside of anyone's control with any given deal. But if you control what you can control in that process, the math usually works out, you know, at the end of the month and into the quarter and into the year. I don't think that I would want to be in a position if things work so much outside of my control. This is Taking the Lead, a podcast for B2B tech professionals, leaders, and executives who want to learn from female icons in the tech industry. In each episode, host Christina Brady interviews women who are driving revenue for some of the most respected tech companies in the world. Are you ready to get inspired? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady, and today I am sitting down with Stephanie Sanders. Stephanie, how are you? I'm good. Always, always excited to chat with you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, yes, meeting meeting again at Saster, we had this moment where we were standing in a, a giant room and we were talking about my show, and I was like, wait, this is ridiculous. You need to be on my show. You are exactly... <laughs> the kind of person that I want to highlight and that all of you should absolutely learn from and be inspired by. And so, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about your story and how you wound up being a, a woman in revenue leadership doing what you do. Tell us the tale. Well, I'm getting up there, you know. It's not as quick of a story as it used to be, but I'll spare you the the reading of the resume. But, you know, my my I graduated from college in 2009. Uh, you guys can do the math on on where that puts me, but wasn't the uh, the best of job markets. You know, I was a, a marketing major in college, had a got a business BBA, you know, degree, but didn't really know what I wanted to do. I don't think most people at that age like truly understand, you know, for the most part. And so I interviewed like a few different types of roles, consulting, marketing, sales, you know, and ended up taking a job at a company called Foresight. They've sold recently, but it was around for 15, 20 years and primarily started out as an outsourced business development function. We spun off a sales training consulting arm while I was there, which is really neat. But for me, what was exciting about it, starting my career is I knew I was going to get the chance to work with a lot of different clients in a lot of different industries. And to me, the idea was like, okay, I go and do this for a year or two. And figure out where I want to go and focus after that. But over the course of, I spent four and a half, five years there, I really just realized that it was the sales process that I really enjoyed and liked. And it didn't so much matter what you were selling, but how you were doing it. And you could almost piecemeal things together like a, a Mad Lib for the most part and just insert the specifics of each client and, and their details. And we primarily were working with with companies in in software and tech, you know. And so in 2014, I moved up to Boston and, and took a job at a company called Brightcove to get into the the tech space, you know, more more specifically. And ever since then, you know, I've just been at different kind of high growth SaaS startups, you know, helping helping scale and um, helping put a little bit of strategy into place with the the teams and everything that that they have. And so. Most recently joined Contract Book about a, a year ago right now, coming up on it. And we are a Danish-based company. So I uh, have been in, in business for about five, six years, but moved to the, the U.S. market about a year and a half ago. And my job has really been helping figure out, you know, the, the playbook and the process for going to market here in North America and building up the team and have had a lot of fun doing it so far. 
my gosh, amazing. And so tell us the makeup of your role right now and what you're doing every single day. So every day is different. You know, that's the, the yes. beauty of a, a startup. And for us, we're almost like a startup within a startup. You know, we, we have the security and, and all of that of a company that's very established in the, the European market. But we're we're still new here. We don't have the, the brand presence. We don't have, you know, a lot of uh, the processes in place. And so one of the things that was most appealing to me coming to Contract Book was the fact that I was going to be some of the first like boots on the ground actually selling within this market. And it's funny, like by my story, you know, and, and, and background, I got promoted into a management role really early on in my career and didn't spend a lot of time truly as a, a seller myself. And so throughout my career, you know, interviewing for, for different jobs here and there, there was always that like, well, when's the last time you carried a bag, you know, and when, when's, like, where were you in AE? Because even when I, I was selling at, at Boresight, it was training and services more so than the software. And so it hit to me selfishly, that was appealing, you know, that I was going to be able to really focus on that for at least the, the first couple of quarters. And it's been the best thing that, that ever happened because I have, you know, so much more empathy for the role and, I understand maybe why notes don't end up in the CRM at the end of the day more so than I did before. And it just helped me understand what the the process should be, you know, so much better than I think I would have had I not spent that time. And so today the the team's grown and I'm I'm not doing as much of that, but but I do still work deals myself and then also focus, you know, on growing the team and coaching them and working deals with with them. And as we grow, you know, getting more involved with with different strategic initiatives that are going on in the company and everything. But it's a good mix, you know, of a sales, sales leadership, strategic role at this point. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I love about your experience and the part that you outlined there is I don't think as many people realize what it takes to gain that instant respect from your teams. Yeah. And it, and it's one element of, Hey, can my leader sell? Do they know how to sell the product? Like, Absolutely, that's going to gain you the instant respect. But you mentioned that element of, like, I understand now why notes don't always make it into the CRM. When yeah. you live, when you have lived in the life and you have that executive level empathy for what the role stands for, you manage your team differently because you have a different level of understanding of why things may not work sometimes or why mm -hmm. they may be broken or what goes into actually doing that thing that you keep asking your people to do. Yep. And so for you, if you keep asking your people to do the same thing over and over again and they're not doing it, you have a different way of looking at that and saying, okay, what data is going into telling me why they're not doing this versus let me just keep telling them to do that. So do you find yourself often using not only your past experience, but also starting to look at data to help you actually drive your team? Like what is that ideal combination of I'm using my experience and my gut and, and what I've done but also trying to loop in a little bit of here's the data around the why. Mm -hmm. Where do you on a daily basis see yourself just balancing those two things? I think it'd be really interesting to ask one of the the reps on my team that question because Oh my God. Let's do it. I'm a very data-driven person. I think that one of the things that I enjoy the most about a career in sales is that. Of course, there are factors that are outside of anyone's control with any given deal. But if you control what you can control in that process, the math usually works out, you know, at the end of the month and into the quarter and into the year. I don't think that I would 
want to be in a position if things work so much outside of my control. And I think that data and metrics and all of that is the best objective way to look at anything like that because it, it compares apples to apples. It allows you to select like very specific parts of your sales process throughout the full sales funnel. I mean, we could talk, we could do one episode on the top of funnel data and metrics and another one for mid funnel and another one for for late stage, you know, but it allows you to really dissect like every single step of, of what's going on and not in a way like I think that data and metrics get kind of a bad rep because there are the leaders that like use it as a way to say like, oh, you're not making enough calls or you need to be doing right. more, or you need to be doing this. But like, I think of it more so as like, <clears throat> okay, you're not feeling well, you go into the doctor first thing they do is like they run blood work because they can't tell by looking at you like what's wrong with you. It's like it's the diagnostic to help figure out what they need to go and look at further. Or you take your car to the, the shop, they plug it into the computer and it lights up and they tell you, OK, we need to look at the engine versus that's the only car part I know the name of. But uh, you know what I mean? It, <laughs> it helps diagnose where to focus. And so by understanding, you know, what the norms are for each staff. Then you can say, okay, if this rep's struggling with their discovery to opt conversion, like let's look at what's going on with those calls. But if this rep's struggling with proposal to close, like that's something separate. And so it's just a way of being able to tell where people are versus where they should be and then really get specific with coaching and with training to those areas that are showing, you know, weakness. Ooh, data is a diagnostic. What a sexy thing to say. <laughs> when we when we think about, so you mentioned like the three different areas of the funnel, and I agree with you. I don't know that so many folks realize how much you can use it very, very different and segmented as you're kind of going through the funnel. So for purposes of today, because we don't have three episodes in one, but we're going to try to cram as much as we can. There we go. If, if you are looking at front of funnel, middle of funnel, back of funnel, mm -hmm. where do you think most people don't use data to make decisions and they should? Because I have my hypotheses, but I want to hear yours. I'd say, I mean, I think top of funnel, it's pretty common, you know, especially right. looking at the the daily activities and calls and emails and social touches and, and all of that at this point. So I think there it's it's very nor very normal, very accepted. It probably happens a little bit less and a little bit less as you go down funnel. So, I mean, mm -hmm. for, you know, mid stages, I think people still pay a lot of attention to discovery to off and off to, you know, whatever, however you classify your stages and that kind of stuff. But then because it does get, get a little bit trickier towards the, the later stages of the, the sales cycle, it becomes so much more specific to like the prospects and their buying decision and, you know, the, the other, the kind of the stuff that starts to get outside of your control, it becomes a little bit less. So is that, is that what you were thinking as well? Yeah, it's it's going right along with my hypothesis. So what I have always seen is you're 100% right. Everybody focuses on the data at the front of the funnel. How many calls does it take? How many calls does it take to set up a meeting? And then for a meeting to a pitch and then a pitch to a... Yeah. And then a close, right? And it's like yeah. there's this weird... It goes off to close and nothing... Right, right, right. And there's this fade out in the middle. And then we really overly track the end of the funnel, but we track mm -hmm. the end of the funnel to give us insights on how to drive the front of the funnel. And 
I tend to think that that middle of the funnel, the reason why we don't focus there as much is because companies likely have a hard time getting clear data on what's happening in there because so much of it is subjective. It it has to do with the prospect. It has to do with how well the rep is keeping their notes. It has to do with their own skill set. It has to do with like where the customer is and what's happening in the world. There's all of these areas in the middle. So we hear it be like, all right, you got to do 100 calls to set, you know, 20 meetings to set five pitches and five, and then you're going to close five per month. And you're like, okay, well, if we're not closing five per month, I guess we should just make some more calls. And really it's like, so knowing that your mind is very much focused on like, where can I find the data to drive my decision? And that middle of the funnel, how do sales leaders find a way to cut through the noise and actually use data to drive decisions and make it stop being so subjective? The first part is just knowing, you know, the the steps that, that need to be happening and where. And so that's part of the process. And the, the thing with like measuring any of this, unfortunately, is it's a little bit, you know, retroactive in certain in certain instances, you know, and we we don't do QBRs or anything to that extent here yet. But um, I do like to sit down with the the team at the end or the beginning of a new quarter, you know, and just look at look at everything that, that happened in the previous quarter, not so much as a way to to dwell on the past. But it's like when you look at, at something with that more bird's eye view, a lot of times there are patterns and things that emerge that you don't see when you're looking at it at a deal by deal level. Mm-hmm. And so for us, one of the things that that we noticed looking at even last quarter's data was. of deals that were lost across the the quarter, across reps, you know, across different size orgs that we were selling to, it was all with the same close loss reason and the same stage in the funnel. Like that, that jumps out at you when you see it, you know, laid out in a spreadsheet. And of course, for each one of those deals, there were very different specific things as to maybe why. But it's like, what could we be doing better to prevent, you know, it from going that that course in the first place? And so some of the things that we're trying out now, and it always is an A-B test and then a little bit of an experimentation, and a little bit of dialing, dialing things up and dialing things down is, you know, we, we run a, a fairly transactional sales cycle, but what we're selling is being evaluated much more like an enterprise type sale because of what we we do. We we sell mm. contract management solution that touches seven different places within most organizations. And even though it's it's not the largest of, of ticket size, we're talking 15, 20K, sometimes there's five, six, seven buyers involved. And so I think that a, a big thing that, that we saw happening last quarter is like us trying to keep up with our typical sales cycle and not have that get too far out of hand, but not being intentional about what we were doing in those 12, 15 days, you know, and what can we do to, to pull more people in and what, how, like, should we add an extra step to the, the sales process or an extra call that helps scope this or an extra proposal review that, that helps us, you know, get through questions in their, in their contract. And, you know, I, I think, We'll see if it makes a difference, but like just being able to experiment, being able to to compare, you know, this is what we saw over this period versus these are the changes we made and what we saw through this period. Like it really helps understand like how things are, are moving and what's impacting, you know, overall performance. Well, you also just hit on the idea you can use data to diagnose, which I think 
that's where also a lot of people stop is they use data to diagnose and they'll identify, like in your example, we're losing a lot of deals at this stage right here. And we've diagnosed that issue. And now what is the fix? And the fix could be, we need to do more training on this stage of the funnel. The fix could be something within our sales process is broken and it's actually not connecting with our customers. A diagnosis could be we have certain reps who are doing things differently at this stage that others should be doing. And so the diagnostic is the ones who are not getting stuck here. What are they doing? (laughs) Yeah. And then determining it. So it's also this idea of I'm going to use data to diagnose what's happening, but then I'm actually going to use that to make a decision. And in your experience, just focus on that using data to drive a change. Change is really, really scary. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times we first get the gut ceiling that we want to change something. It's like something doesn't feel right. And anybody who is numbers or operations minded, when you go to them, you're like, this doesn't feel good. They're like, quantify that. And you're like, it's icky. It just feels icky and I don't like it. So in your experience, have you been in a position where you've had that feeling first that something is wrong, something is broken? You've had to use the data to actually confirm the decision and then you were able to make the change have you gone through kind of that full gamut of feels icky data supports that now we're going to change it if you have how did you do that and who was involved big question for you just a fastball right at your face (laughs) i think there's so many different different ways you could even take that question though like something like that could be as simple as like is it going to work out with this rep or not? You know, like using data to to make those really, really tough decisions of, of hiring, of firing, of promotions, you know, all of that. Like, I think that, that, that that's one example. It could be something, you know, in terms of, okay, are, are we packaging and pricing the right way, like to compete with the, the companies that we're up against? Like, how do we look at all of this stuff? I think uh, a recent example would be more along the, <clears throat> the the side of things when it comes to like evaluating a tool that, that we want to potentially bring yeah. on. And so I'll give a little shout out to a, a company called Nooks. They're one of our customers and we've been trying out, you know, their virtual sales floor tool, which, you know, allows we're all remote in the U.S. It allows the, the team to pop in. The, the platform and make calls together and be able to hear each other like while they're on the phone and give feedback, you know, real time more so than in a, a call review session a week later, you know, that kind of stuff. But they have a power dialer part of it as well. And so what I've been considering is, okay, like this allows us to like our baseline for, for metrics across the, the team and our, our AEs do some of their own self self-sourcing and, and, and pipeline building and stuff. So the, the BDR role is is across the entire sales org for the most part. But like our, our baseline is this today using our, our typical methods. Nooks would allow us to do 2x, 3x, 4x. And like what is the input or what is the the impact of that across everything else that we're going to be doing? So if, if BDRs and AEs can make three times more dials a day, and get feedback on those calls in a way that they can't today with with working with their teammates and everything. That's harder to quantify, but that would allow us to book 2x more meetings. And what would 2x more meetings do for our pipeline? And if we continue with the same win rate, like what would that mean for for what we end up closing? And so when you, you're evaluating any sort of like tech to to buy, I think it's important to do that type of analysis because 
it's money, you know, and, and we have to justify why we want to go and spend what it's going to cost. And, you know, for, for this discussion in particular, obviously, I've been involved. Our, our head of global business development has been involved for, for working with the, the biz dev side of things. My boss has been involved. RevOps has been involved. Our, our head of operations has been involved just because it, it is something that touches so many different parts of the, the organization for something as simple as like, do we add a piece to our tech stack? You know, so I think you're, you're going to be able to find ways to use, you know, objective numbers at any point in a leadership role. It's just a matter of like how you, you dig in and how you slice and dice them. Yeah. And then you have to be really good at telling the story to try to make the change that you feel like is best for the org. Because have you ever been in a situation where you have, you have the data, we'll just call it, there's the data on the thing. And we have the data on the thing and you're looking at the data and you're analyzing it to support this change that you want to make or this improvement that you want to make or this tool that you want to use. And then somebody else is looking at the same data and the same piece of paper. And they're like, I disagree. I actually think this data is telling us this. How or, do you handle? You could yeah. be in conflict with yourself too. Like I've had situations where like yeah. I look at the numbers and I know what it's saying, but it's like, but he really works hard, you know, or like he. Oh my god, you oh. know, like there's there's always that that stuff where you can even debate with your yourself, and I think that 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 is even tougher than like having to have a tougher conversation with with one of your colleagues, and so. You know, I try to err on the side of like numbers don't lie, you know, and that like your gut sometimes can be wrong, but it, you have you, it, it, nothing can be looked at in a vacuum, you know what I mean? And I think it's important to use as much as you can to help make informed decisions. And a lot of that includes collaboration with others for their perspectives and how they interpret it. But I mean, there, there's some stuff that's just going to be tough no matter what. Well, you laid out one of, I think, the hardest things that anybody in any kind of leadership role has to deal with, which is, look about this, this individual contributor, this, this rep, wh whoever the person is that is in your organization, the data is telling you they are underperforming or they are underperforming consistently, but you're fighting with yourself because you're like, but there's so many good things and they're trying so hard and they're improving. And there's something about that individual that tells you, no, they're great, they're good, but then somebody else on the team with the exact same numbers on paper, right. you do not have that sentiment about. So then you are trying to quantify and you're trying to make the case of one individual with the same numbers that are objectively bad. But no, 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 they are good. And then another person, same numbers. That, But you're like, that, no, those numbers are more reflective of their work. And you have to try to balance that yeah. and make the right decision. And you can go back and forth a ton. And in that situation where you're working with a cross-functional partner and maybe you are looking at what is on the page very, very differently. How how do you navigate that and still feel like you win? Because yeah, numbers don't lie, but the stories they tell can be very, very nuanced. It's like the number's there. I see the number. Here's what I, I see this number this way. And you're like, yeah. well, how do you deal with that? Because it's tough internally. Yeah. And you're not always going to win. And like, you have to be okay with that. Me personally, and I mean, you know me, like, I'm a very direct person and I, I don't yes, I don't see a, a reason not to be for the most part. But sometimes that can be a challenge, you know, working with with people you might not work with all that often or just trying to understand how best to to collaborate and communicate with with other parties and people and reps on your team and all of that. 
But so I think that the the most important thing uh, approaching any of those situations is just like a going into it with like an open mind because maybe there is something that they see that that you're blinded by because you're too close to the situation sometimes. Or maybe they the way they're interpreting, you know, the the numbers and everything is is probably the the right way to look at it, you know. And so I think you have to be open to that conversation. And at the end of the day, it's like sell it like what we're doing. We're not this isn't the end of the world. It's not life or death. We're not curing cancer. What's more important, you know, at the end of it is is being able to continue, you know, those collaborations and, and, and relationships with the people that you work with. And sometimes like you have to decide, like, is this a hill I'm going to die on? And if it's not, then I think you just look at it from, OK, this is a learning experience. These are the ways that, that, that maybe next time, like when something like this is going on, I could take their perspective and use it, you know, and and then, you know, move on to whatever the next challenge and, and problem is. But it's always about communication. It's always about being open to other perspectives and other 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 ways of looking at the same slice of the pie and then using that, you know, to to help hopefully pro- progress your agenda and, and everything as well in, in yeah. the next situation. The next situation is right around the corner. Yeah. It's just going to hit you right away. It's going to slap you right in the face. It's yep. going to smack. A way to pivot. I know if anybody on this call has ever... So some people may be screaming at whatever they're listening to saying, but what if the data is wrong? And what I mean is let's talk about the intersection of data and trust. I've worked at some fairly large tech companies and some, you know, a a tad smaller. There have been moments where a very, very trusted team has pulled and presented data and that data, for whatever reason, is actually incorrect and the numbers right. aren't the right numbers. Yep. And I found that when I would present that to my team and they recognized that data is incorrect, it was very hard for me to be able to gain the trust back from the team that any data set coming from that same team or that same mm-hmm. org was going to be correct. So it was almost like after multiple times of like, well, that was wrong or that wasn't pulled correctly, we had to operate with this element of a little bit of mistrust and double checking. Yeah. And once you don't trust one cell in the data, the entire spreadsheet to me becomes just a little mm-hmm. little bit hazy. So in your experience, how do you balance that intersection of data and trust and this idea that if you're presenting me data, it better be infallible. And sometimes that just can't happen. Yeah. Had a, had a pretty similar thing come up, you know, in the past couple of months to this and it was one of our marketing and sales, you know, yeah. collaboration meetings. And, you know, I'm not saying we have any issues with this contract book, but sometimes there's a little bit of, of tension that, that can live between marketing and sales. And I, I think here we do a really good job of avoiding that. But we were in a meeting presenting, you know, the the numbers over a certain period. And it was it was one of those things I was looking at. I was like, that can't be right. Like, that just cannot be the the right number. And again, very direct, like I probably like should have just held that to myself until the meeting was over and, and talked separately to that person. But I think the the good part to come out of it was I raised the concern and I said, you know, like I, I'd really like to look at this with you. Like, can you show me where you pulled this from? And then I met with them, th- that person separately. And we realized there, there was a, there was an error. And so <clears throat> to me, like, there was no question the next time because we had looked at it together. We'd worked on it together. We we found where the the error was coming from, which made it, you know, the next time say, 
okay, I know they're pulling this the right way this time. So this probably is the the right way. And I think that, you know, for for most things, like people just want to know why they want to they want to have that that explanation of if something's different than what it's been or what they think it should be, like the reasoning behind it and, and what's happened and what's going to be done to prevent it from being happened from happening again in the future. And so I think that the way that I initially handled it probably wasn't best, but then, you know, being able to go and have that conversation and um, work with them to come to the the right answer made me say, okay, like this should be right, you know, the next time that, that we do it. Yeah. Do you think that the way that you handled it not being right and saying it in the moment was because whoever was presenting the data felt called out or embarrassed? Or do you think it was because you created doubt amongst people in the room in the entire, like, in the entire subset of what you were going through? Like, what makes you think mostly like, ah, that was the wrong move to say it out loud. And I'm going to do a caveat because what I find would help with some of the trust on my teams when I'd be presenting data that we'd be making decisions based on is if there was an issue and I caught it, then when I said, hey, this data is sound later and this looks good, I had the trust because they knew, okay, if there's an issue, Christina's going to find it. So on the one hand, it's like you could have garnered some trust, but on the other, something gave you that icky feeling. So what was Mm -hmm. it? I think, I mean, and I'm not saying that I shouldn't have. It was just, you know, maybe could have handled it. It was just, I presented a problem with no possible solution, you know what I mean? And so (laughs) you're wrong. It wasn't that I was saying like, okay, like, did you get this from here? And and should we pull it from here? It was just, this is wrong. (laughs) So I think that, again, that goes into the ability, you know, to work together and collaborate with people and just saying like, Maybe if I had said it more so like, hey, you know what, like based on what I have seen, like with these conversions, like that number kind of surprises me. Like, could we go and look at it separately? That would have been maybe a better way to handle it than that just doesn't look right. <laughs> I mean, we we become better professionals by having those moments of like, mm, way I'd handle that. I'm like you. I am fairly direct. And. I have certainly had my moments and multiple of them where I'm just like, this is, this is who did this? And then I'm like, wait, I don't, I I shouldn't approach it this way. Because you also, I mean, you have to rely very, very heavily on cross-functional partners and other folks in the go-to-market org to really help you pull this data and make the decision. And so for you- something like that. I mean, I'm a salesperson. Like I can, I can work my way around, you know, HubSpot and Salesforce reports, but I mean, I'm not a data analyst by any, by any means. I can, can barely use Excel. And so for something that I do rely on so heavily for my job, like it's very important to, to be able to, to have those partnerships. Yeah. How, so on a daily basis, what cross-functional partners would you say that you are working with to kind of help you supplement and get the information that you need to drive? Obviously, RevOps. I mean, that's the yeah. the given. But we actually, with within our work, we have a data team as well that is oh. under RevOps, and so that is something that I haven't had the luxury of having at previous jobs, which is really really helpful. And so, for a company that the size that we are, we're like 130, 140 employees. I mean, we have a RevOps function, we have sales ops, we have marketing ops, we have business ops, like. We've got a lot of resources there that we wouldn't, that I, I haven't had at, at other companies in the, the same size and employee count. So that helps a lot. Otherwise, you know, previously it's been more so a function of 
sometimes even finance or just operations in general being the ones that, that house that type of information. But I think that most sales leaders are going to rely the, the most heavily on, on rev ops or sales ops, which yeah. is, is tough because they're so busy. Right. And everybody has requests for them. Yeah. And what, in your opinion, is the right way to go about getting the extra information that you need from those teams to run your day without completely overwhelming them? Because it, sometimes it could just feel like like everyone's throwing all of their requests, like, I need this, pull this, have yeah. this happen. So do you recommend sort of organizing a system by which we go and ask these teams to give us their specific time? We use tickets here. So we submit a request with, you know, why we need what we need and what it is and what the impact of it is and all of that. And it's it takes 25 seconds to fill out. We use Slack and, and Monday.com to do it. I think that's great. I think that you know, if if you're in a director or VP level role at, at a company, you should be pretty self-sufficient with this too, you know, like you should be able to build a report on your own and get the information yourself for the most part. But there's obviously stuff that you're going to need, you're going to need help with. I try myself first and if I can't, can't figure it out, then we have the the ticketing system, which helps, you know, just keep their their funnel, you know, organized and we can rank, you know, this is, I absolutely need this done because I can't work without it versus, hey, it would be really nice to have. Uh, and then they work on sprints, you know, in a way that they say, okay, we'll have this by this week and this by that week. Yeah. I feel like this is also a good time to employ the, have you ever used the like important versus urgency matrix? No. Okay. This is one of my favorite matrices. I'm going to try to say it out loud, but it's basically like you do, you do one of these, right? Yeah. You do one of these. And if you're just listening, I'm crossing my arms to make kind of a four quadrant kind of graph. And at the top, you write important. And at the mm -hmm. bottom, you write not important. And on the right, you put urgent. And on the left, you put not urgent. Yeah. And this is an exercise I recommend everybody to do when you are asking a cross-functional partner for help is if it is in the top right quadrant, it is important and it is urgent. Mm -hmm. This is a meaningful thing that I need right now. On the left-hand side, this is really, really important. This is not urgent. You mm -hmm. don't have to put everything down and get me this, but it is an important report that I need. Maybe give them a buy date, right? Like yeah. I need this in a week. I need this in two weeks. Yeah. The bottom left quadrant, that's not where you really want to be. That yeah. bottom left quadrant, this is not important. It's not urgent. I just want to see how many of my people are doing X, just like for fun or like just kind of stuff. Like I just kind of want to see, but you can't tie it to a business need. And we get a lot of those that come through, right? Where people are like, hey, could you pull, could you pull some data on this? And you're like, what? And they're Why? like, I need it now. And you're like, no, you don't. And then on the other side, it's not important, but it's very, very urgent where maybe there is something that somebody else is putting on your plate or it's not going to meaningfully impact the business. But for some reason, mm -hmm. deadline is due. Who's going to make the cutoff for this bit? Like, look, it's super urgent. And I get that like a mistake of priorities, not big. It's not that important, but like, I really need it right now. Like, can you please prioritize this? Yeah, that's before really good. Submitting, yeah, before submitting and asking for anything, just do that quick exercise and then mm -hmm. use that verbiage when you are requesting it. Like, yeah. this is really important. This is really urgent. This is really urgent. I get that it doesn't look like a big priority, but here's why I need it. Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and save your people the time. Yeah. So that brings us see and then i and then we always go longer than i want to because i get so in depth in your questions <laughs> let's pivot over to our rapid reveal if you are up for it yeah yes. Let's do it. yes as we know i have five questions you have 60 seconds or less to answer each which yep. you're really good at hitting your point and hitting it quickly so you're not gonna have a problem with this which is <laughs> phenomenal you're like here's the point bam i'm like full right. stop I'm telling you that. <laughs> i love it i love it 
Number one, what was your first paid job? So first ever paid job. I was a swimmer. Ever. I was a swimmer growing up. And so my my first job that I ever got like money for was a lifeguard and swim coach for my like summer pool. Yes, I was a swimmer growing up too. Long there that summer. <laughs> oh, I bet you. Yeah, with the the chlorine streaks. Yeah. What was your stroke? I was a sprint freestyler, so the fifty, the hundred, and occasional two hundred, but that was getting a little long for me. Yeah, I always thought that I was a butterflyer as a swimmer. And I was like, oh, that's my stroke. And then yeah. when I think about it, I was actually really bad at it. I just thought that it was cool. And I was like, that's my stroke. You know, and I was thinking about how- so you were right. Like, I was like, mm. yeah, I know I do butterfly. And then I think about it and I was like, it was very poor, very, very poor execution at my part. I don't know why I said that. So I really think, and I were probably at 60 seconds, but kind of tying this to, to everything we've been talking about. I think that a lot that has impacted how I look at, at stuff like this with data, with numbers, with all of that is because of swimming. It was very black and white. It's like, did you get the time or did you not? And, you know, for for me, I think that was why I always um, and I played at some other sports like up to like middle school. But then, you know, I picked swimming and was very focused on that. But that was what I liked about it. It wasn't anything that other people impacted my performance. It was me versus a clock. And that's kind of how I've looked at, you know, okay, did I do what I needed to do this month to get to my number? Yes or no. And like, I think that's what made me, you know, gravitate towards a career in sales as well. You see, this is why we do the rapid reveal right there. We just a little bit of who you are. We just captured your why. It's a beautiful thing. I love it. Brings me to number two. What's an irrational fear of yours? I do not like to fly. I have been on like 60 some flights this year. I fly all of the time. But I am uh, a very nervous flyer and I know it's the safest and I know all of the stats. But, you know, when when the turbulence hits, there's nothing that, that can help me feel better up there anyways. So I'm hearing you say that the data suggests yeah. it's very, very safe. <laughs> this is one of those yeah. times where it's like I see it, I understand it, but it doesn't change like that, that internal. <laughs> yeah. Don't like the data. Don't like it. Simply won't listen to it. Don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't agree with me. <laughs> awesome. Oh, numbers look off to me. <laughs> I don't. You know what? I, somebody rerun this. This can't be safe. We're flying in the air. There's nothing yeah. holding us up. No nets. <laughs> this doesn't seem safe. <laughs> All right. Number three. If you could wave a magic wand and acquire any new skill, anything, what would it be? Well, I have zero musical talent, but I really enjoy, you know, going to concerts. And I feel like that's just one of the coolest things that that someone can can be really good at. So I would probably pick, you know, just be able to pick up any instrument and be able to play and that thing. I love it. That's a good one. Yeah. Number four, what is the last pep talk you gave yourself? When do you have to talk yourself up? Yeah, I have to give myself some sort of little bit of a pep talk most days, you know. You're like today, right before this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, gosh, I got to go. I have to go go do this now. Let's see. Last quarter, we had a pretty slow start. You know, I think most Q3 of, of this year wasn't great for a lot of companies. And coming towards like the final couple weeks, it was just pretty crazy time. Like we did Sasser and then it was like we kind of caught up for a week and then it was quarter end and you know it's a pep talk for for me myself but like just for the team as a whole you know like well, what can we do like what can we show is this final big push and we were able to close like seven or eight deals on the last day of the quarter which I wouldn't I wouldn't 
say is the best way to work, but we at least, you know, got a final little push over the finish line and hit, you know, targets and, and stuff like that at the, the last minute, which was pretty awesome. God, I love it. See, that's a good one. And and this brings us to number five. What would be your ideal way to spend two hours of your time? Could you two hours you of your time. Hours? Whew, right now, I think I'd probably pick like a 90 minute massage at a really nice spa and then just enjoy the, the 30 minutes of, of relaxing after that. <laughs> <laughs> the 30 minutes of everybody just leaving you alone. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I I That's feel that. Right now. <laughs> yes. Well, I imagine that a lot of folks are likely going to want to connect with you, not only to learn more about you and what you are doing, but also more about your company and what you are building. So where can folks find you and learn about you or learn about ContractBook? Yeah. So ContractBook, we're contractbook.com. We help work with companies to to ease and automate their their contract processes. So always happy to to chat about that. I'm on LinkedIn. I think it's LinkedIn slash Steph D. Sanders. And uh, my email is just sds at contractbook.com. So I would love to connect with anyone who's listening and, you know, chat about data, swimming, all of the above. Never Pep talks. Pep talks. Fears. I love it. Yeah, not not too much more on the flying because I have to to fly to the sales assembly dinner this week. So you you do. You do. Yeah. So, so. We will see you there. And everyone for listening with us again, thank you for spending your time with us. Stephanie, I cannot thank you enough. This has been a wonderful conversation. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Taking the Lead. If you're looking for more inspiring stories from women leaders in B2B tech, then visit us at motionagency.io slash taking the lead.